Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Autumn Wilkie and I am the ho- a host with the New Books Network. Today we're joined by Dr. Christopher Krentz, who will be discussing his new book, Elusive Kinship, Disability and Human Rights in Postcolonial Literature. Chris is a member of the deaf community and to facilitate this podcast episode, we are using caption technology, which may result in a short delay between questions and responses as we wait for the technology to catch up. Christopher is an associate professor at the University of Virginia, where he has a joint appointment with the Departments of English and American Sign Language. He is also the author of Writing Deafness, The Hearing Line in 19th Century American Literature, and the editor of A Mighty Change, an anthology of deaf American writing, 1816 to 1864, as well as numerous articles about disability in literature and culture. He is currently the director of University of Virginia's Disability Studies Initiative and helped found their American Sign Language program. Christopher, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your expertise with our listeners uh, of the New Books Network. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am very excited for this upcoming conversation. Uh, why don't, to get us started, why don't you tell us tell our listeners a little bit uh, about what in the field of literature constitutes post-colonial lit- literature for those who may not be as familiar with the field? Okay, great question. Um, when I was an undergraduate majoring in English in the 1980s, way back when, <laughs> I did not study any post-colonial literature, nor did I in graduate school in the 1990s. But it has really started attracting much more attention recently. And by post-colonial, we mean literature in English that is not from the United States or Great Britain. So most of it is from the former British colonies like India, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, South Africa. And um, so, but it is in English and it's in a very important, important part of English literary studies. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And can you tell us a little bit about what led you to writing Elusive Kinship? Well, that means writing. Okay, sure. Um, interesting question. As you mentioned, I'm late up then, so I've been working in um, representations of disability and literature and film for a long time. And in 2002, a prominent scholar, Otto Quason, um, mentioned that post-colonial literature has a lot of characters with disabilities, which I thought was really interesting. 
So I started exploring and I could not find much scholarship. And I decided to teach a few classes on this, disability and post-colonial literature. And to design those courses, I did background reading and assigned a variety of texts. And the students responded really well. This is a very exciting and vibrant literature. And um, that kind of led me to think about doing a book about the topic. I also had some real world experience. I took a trip to Zimbabwe and Kenya and visited children um, with disabilities at various schools. So it gave me some real world experience. Um, I've learned a lot with this project and I always emphasize I'm not trying to have a last word or anything like that. I just want to advance the conversation. Awesome. Well, and, and one of the things that you do in your introduction is you introduce readers to how you are using the terms, the global South disability human rights. Uh, can you provide us a brief overview for listeners of these terms and why it was important for you to create a shared understanding with your readers? Okay. Well, um, there are key concepts for this study, so I felt it important to clarify how I'm using them up front. So, for example, we, of course, have talked about the dignity of humans, loving your neighbor and so forth since ancient times. It goes way back. But by human rights in this book, I'm especially interested in the human rights conventions passed by the United Nations since 1948. Um, and then with both disability and the global south, there is a lot of ambiguity. So disability has meant different things at different times and in different places. And the global south literally refers to the southern hemisphere before, below the equator. But of course, with migrants and refugees, many people originally from the global south now live in the north. So with both disability and the global south, I don't really try to rigidly define them. I'm just saying these are ideas that are worth exploring. Great. And one of the things, and you already started to allude to this in, in your previous, uh, when you were talking about your writing of elusive kinship, but can you talk a little bit about the process of examining the post-colonial literature for narratives of disability? Uh, what were some of the ways that your study evolved into the chapters that you included in the book? Okay, sure. Um, the process really started um, with my classes. So when I was designing syllabi, I did a lot of background reading. And then in classes on disability and post-colonial fiction, I um, assigned a variety of texts and developed my ideas. And I could see what students responded to. And um, that kind of made me more interested in the um, topic. The first authors I talk about in the book are well-known post-colonial writers, Achebe, Rushdie, and Kutze. Um, and then the others are more recent and might be unfamiliar to readers, but I think they're really exciting and do worthwhile work. What were some of your favorite examples of disability that you encountered within the narratives uh, that you, both for your course and as you were writing the book? Okay. Um, I should say that everything I included in the book are things I like. <laughs> so I have a hard time selling on favorites, but I'll just mention a few. Um, Salmon Rushdie wrote an epic novel called Midnight Children, where the narrator is disabled. Um, he is born with birthmarks. He is partially deaf, um, but he also has supernatural powers. This is magic realism. And he believes that he can communicate mentally 
um, using telepathy with all other children born in the first hour after um, India's independence in 1947. So um, we have a disabled narrator, but um, he's also um, supernatural in some ways. So um, in Anita decides fasting, feasting, um, Desai, well known as, um, sometimes she's compared favorably to Jane Austen as somebody who gives detailed pictures of the domestic sphere. And um, she does this in this book. We encounter Uma, who um, is an ungainly daughter who apparently has some learning disabilities. And um, when others take her outside of the home, she has a sense of liberation and empowerment, but her parents are deeply ashamed of her disability. This is in India. And they hide her away, and um, she winds up taking care of them at the end of the book. So um, that kind of complicates the image of disabled people, too. Um, so those are just two examples. There's many more. Pachina Gappa's The Book of Memory is about um, a woman who's an albino who's been wrongly accused of murder. So she's writing from death row in Zimbabwe. Um, Katsi's Life and Times of Michael Kay um, is about a man with a cognitive disability who is wandering through war-torn South Africa. Um, so there's some really vivid um, work happening in the genre. Thank you so much for sharing sharing some of those insights about what really spoke to you within within the narratives. Uh, and as you alluded to, uh, some of the prominent authors like Achebe and Rushdie, they use disability within their work. Um, as you were examining the deployment of disability, um, how does that provide an additional lens for understanding a range of other cultural issues? Um, it provides an additional lens because in literature classrooms, we all often talk about race, gender, and class, how those things show up in narratives, and that can lead to very revealing insights and conversations. So um, approaching them through a disability lens is kind of a parallel enterprise. And in fact, um, disability often intersects with these other identity categories, like um, disability and gender. It's very significant in the size novel that Uma is a woman. Um, because um, in mid-20th century India, men and women had very different roles. Women didn't leave the home until they were married in the, in the small town um, outside of India. And um, let's see, another example is Achepe's Things Fall Apart, um, which might not seem at first class to even be about disability. But the Igbo clan's um, formidable war medicine is associated to a mythical one-legged woman. Um, so disability becomes linked to power. And then the protagonist, Okonkwo, um, is very strong, but he doesn't want anything to do with weakness. And unfortunately, when he gets angry, he tends to stutter which is a real disability in this culture that values speech. So when he gets angry, he tends to hide his stutter by resorting quickly to violence. And that leads to his downfall. So in a way, disability structures this novel, even if it's not um, central or prominent. 
So you, you've actually shared a couple of examples now, um, both from Achebe and from Rushdie, of places where disability is represented alongside sort of the supernatural or alongside um, deities. Uh, were there other examples of that that you encountered uh, as you were looking through the literature? Other examples where they're associated with the supernatural? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think I already mentioned the um, most prominent examples. There's another um, case. Um, Chris Abani has a short novel called Song for Night, where the narrator is a bomb diffuser in the Nigerian Civil War. And he has had his vocal cords severed. So he can't speak vocally. Um, he is thinking in Igbo, but somehow we are reading his words in English. And he says, he doesn't have time to explain how this happens. <laughs> so it seems supernatural, hard to believe, um, but it's the kind of experience that is often invisible to us in the global north. And one thing these novels do is um, make more visible um, the many different disabled experiences in the south. Yeah, and that was one of the things I was actually wondering about is how does examining disability in post-colonial literature really help understand or expand our understandings of disability, um, not just, you know, sort of disability on an international scale, but really understanding or complicating the ways we think about disability in the global north? That's, that's a wonderful question. Um, disability in the global south is often very different from disability in developed countries in the north. So um, in the North, we often have many more resources. Um, that's not so true in the South. Um, one novel um, by Indra Sinha called Animals People is about a boy who goes about on all fours. Um, and this is the result of an accident at a chemical plant. And ironically, the chemical plant is American. <laughs> so it's a critique of kind of global capitalism at work. And, um, and the character is called Animal. And in his community, there, it's impossible to use a wheelchair. There's a lot of hills, a lot of cobblestones. And so his experience is unlike anything I think could happen to disabled people in the North a disabled person in the North. Kind of building on that, uh, you open chapter six with a quote from Helen Mikosha and Karen Soldatic uh, that reads, many of the everyday experiences of disabled people in the global South lie outside the reach of human rights instruments. How do you see works of literature playing a role in changing international awareness of those everyday experiences of disabled people in the global South, which might actually be taking that prior example uh, just even a little bit further and, and tying it into our human rights instruments? Well, I, I call the book Elusive Kinship because I want to hint at how this literature often, though not always, kind of creates a tug of connection between readers and disabled characters and opens up awareness and even empathy. And um, so we become much more aware of disabled characters as humans. And one big change with human rights over the last 50 years or so has been um, from seeing disabled as um, terrible objects of that deserving pity to people with rights. And I argue that um, 
this literature has helped to contribute to the idea that disabled people are people too. Um, so I do think it raises awareness. Um, many experiences like, for example, in Desai, how her parents want to hide her away, that's not really covered by human rights. But it is still something that many disabled people experience in the global south and the global north too, for that matter. Um, just the stigma. And one thing I talk about is the difference between an isolated disabled person and a person in a community with other disabled people. Um, but this literature kind of um, expands awareness and complicates our understanding of what disability means. One of the things that I found really interesting as I was reading the book, and it's actually really early in the book, I think it's actually in the introduction that you map out when these books or these narratives came out alongside sort of big pieces of um, advancement in human rights initiatives and, and things like that. Were there were there particular themes or or things that really stood out to you as you were mapping sort of the, the timeline of post-colonial literature and representation of disability alongside human rights advancements that were hap happening globally? Well, one insight I came across that was really helpful was that human rights advocacy always begins in the imagination. It's not about laws, it's not about treaties, it's about making people imagine others and think about them. And I argue that literature can help do that. So um, when we think about the history of human rights in 1948, if you remember, um, the United Nations had a universal declaration of rights. And um, ever since, it has um, issued more specific treaties about um, the rights of people based on race, about the rights of women, and so on and so forth. And in 2006, the United Nations adopted a convention on the rights of persons with disabilities. So um, giving recognition to um, the value of people with physical and mental differences. So um, one way I um, approached this book was just thinking about how literature, this is really an argument for the value of literature, <laughs> that there are real world consequences, that it can change the world. And um, it's one way I try to sell my classes on the first day. Um, reading literature is not just uh, exercise in um, passing the time but it can make a real difference in how we think and feel about others. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, as I was reading your book, one of the things that I was thinking about, um, and, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, is, uh, you know, thinking about the UN um, Convention on the Rights of Disabled Persons and the fact that there's a number of countries in the global north, including the U.S., who have not signed on or ratified uh, that particular convention um, uh, from the U.N. And, and I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that and how literature um, uh, can play a role in helping um, us, sort of us thinking about the U.S., you know, sort of re reconceptualize our, our sort of distance from um, uh, taking part in, in some of these important um, uh, human rights conventions. And now we're getting into politics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the United States is one of the very few nations, I think Syria is the other, that did not ratify 
the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And this is not the only case. It's also, also true with the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, and basically it comes down to some people in Congress not wanting the United States to be, um, but to have to subscribe to any international body. So um, it is what it is. I think the value of literature telling stories um, can help push against that. Yeah. Yeah, provide provide an, a, a further sort of humanistic view as opposed to that that political uh, who are we beholden to uh, view. What what are some of the things that you're working on now? Well, let's see. Um, this book took me a long time, <laughs> so um, I'm enjoying a moment of peace. <laughs> I have a few articles to write on the horizon, and eventually, I'm hoping to. Um, take on some kind of larger project and aim towards more of a general audience. Um, this book and my last book have really been academic projects, which is great. Um, but like most authors, I want a lot of readers. <laughs> so um, we'll see what I come up with. But my immediate project right now is I'm looking at um, the history of the American deaf community and concepts of disability. Because sometimes in deaf American history, deaf people have distanced themselves from the disabled label, especially during eugenics um, around the turn of the 20th century. But at other times, they've embraced it. So I'm exploring that a little bit. Well, I look forward to, to reading uh, your future articles when those come out. Uh, so, Chris, thank you again so much for spending some time with me and the listeners of the New Books Network. Um, for everyone who's listening, I highly encourage you to check out the complete text of Chris's book, Elusive Kinship, Disability and Human Rights in Postcolonial Literature. Uh, and I will see or hear from all of you next time. <laughs> okay, thank you so much again.